0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that, Father, you'd be pleased to bless us this morning with understanding, and uh, then much more than understanding, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would really storm the gates of our hearts with this verse, especially verse 13, Father, for that is the burden of the message this morning, Lord, and We pray, Father, you would speak to us and communicate to us, Father. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning we might need to put our thinking caps on just a little bit. I don't think it'll be too, too bad, but we might need to put our thinking caps on a little bit. Um, I want to bring, really, to you uh, uh, some material that has been really meaningful to me over the years. And um, I don't think that I could teach on Romans eight thirteen without bringing this material in. And uh, you know John Owen's explanation of Romans eight thirteen, and I shared with you in an earlier message that he wrote an entire book on this single verse. It's one of his most famous works on the mortification of sin. And um, when sometimes when you when you hear a great Bible teacher, a great preacher preach on a particular passage of Scripture. And and you've had it explained by a great Bible teacher a great preacher you you probably would be hard pressed to explain it any different in in any other way than the way you've heard it Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about you'll you'll listen to a recording maybe of of a a really good Bible teacher and and you'll hear a verse opened up and uh wow you know you get it Uh, by God's grace uh he helps you to understand, enables you to understand. It's so next thing you know, you find yourself um, giving the same explanation to others. And what do you end up doing? You end up following the course that you heard. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I don't think that I could teach on Romans eight thirteen having been so impacted by Owen's Explanation of it that if I were to come up here, really, I would never come up here without any preparation. But if I did, and I started on Romans 8 13, I'd probably be following this anyway. But all of this to say is that I'm intentionally following him this morning, and I I really want to try to share a few highlights uh, with you to uh, expose you to some of this. Um, I think uh, hopefully you'll be blessed as I was blessed. Uh, God has given us. Bible teachers and pastors, and he's given. Thank goodness, my library is full of them. He's given us. Um, he's raised up really good Bible teachers and, and preachers, so that we could grow in our faith, so we could be equipped for every good work, as Ephesians four eleven teaches. So, um, let me start the same way Owen starts. If we look at our verse, if we look at verse thirteen. Uh, Owen sets forth really five points that, uh, he initially, um, um, drives home, uh, from Romans eight thirteen, and I'm going to follow that same pattern. He says, first, there's a duty in his words The quote, a duty is described. It's kind of neat the way these guys wrote. I mean, after a while you get a little bit used to it, um, I would say, well, we're given something to do, but um, he wouldn't say it that way. He would say there's a duty described, you know. Um, There is a duty described. There's something that we're called upon to do. Secondly, he says the persons are denoted to whom it is prescribed. The persons are denoted to whom it is described. Um, In other words, we're given this pronoun, you, if you look at our verse there, for if you live according to the flesh... you will will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live we have a tendency maybe not to focus so much on pronouns but i'm gonna if we're gonna see here in a few minutes this pronoun is crucial it's crucial that we understand the place that this pronoun has uh, in these verses so that's the second point the third is there's a promise that's easy for us to see and needs little commentary. The fourth, there's a cause or a means to obtaining uh, these particular ends. I'll, I'll say, I'll explain that in a few minutes. And fifth, there's a conditionality. Uh, that needs some explanation. Someone might be scratch their head A conditionality. What is a conditionality? Well, let's start with that. We're not going to take these in the order that I just give them. Uh, we'll start with the last one. Um, you know, the conditionality someone says conditionality what do you mean by conditionality well there's this little word called if you see the little word if there and uh, in verse 13 for if and it's repeated in the second part of it for if you live according to the flesh you will die uh, or if by the spirit you put the death the deeds of the body you will live uh, the if here is a conditional Uh, it's a conditional word, and we use it all the time. In the announcement, I I, I don't think I said this. Maybe I did say, I think I said something about the weather. It's looking good for Friday for our bonfire, uh, but here's the deal. If it doesn't rain, we're going to have a bonfire, right? If it pours down rain, we're not having a bonfire. Uh, Simple enough. Uh, We talk like this all the time, and... um, We understand what that means. There's a condition. If the condition is met, namely there's no rain, there's going to be a bonfire. Uh, Simple enough. Paul says here, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, what Paul wants us to see here is the certainty of these connections. The certainty of these connections. If you live according to the flesh, you can count on it. It is certain you will perish. And conversely, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, it is certain you will live. Now, uh, it's important that we go through this very slowly and very carefully. And maybe some am looking around for some facial expressions because already we should be going, OK, um, there's a problem here. Has anybody detected the problem already? Paul says, okay, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is Paul saying here? Uh, is he saying that we can have eternal life by mortifying the flesh? Mortify simply means to kill, to put to death. Is he saying that we can have eternal life if we just simply put our, our sin to death? Is that what he's saying? That kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Now, we shake our heads, no. Now, we shake our heads, no, because there's a, there's a rule of interpreting Scripture that's so important. I've been introducing it over the last couple of months, and it's important. And what that rule basically states that any interpretation that we arrive at, at one verse of Scripture, needs to be able to withstand the scrutiny of the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. So in other words, what's what's behind this is that God doesn't contradict himself in his word. He doesn't say one thing in his word over here and then contradict it over here. We can read scripture and we can find things that seem to contradict each other. And when we arrive at these contradictions, we can be rest assured that our interpretation of one or both of these passages uh, is is an error because the Bible does not contradict itself. So what am I saying here? Okay, Uh, Paul has labored intensely, and we've seen over and over again, he has labored to tell us that it is by faith that we are saved. It is by faith that we are saved. If you back up, look look to Romans 6 and verse 23. That famous verse you hear quoted all the time the wages of sin is death. But Paul tells us in that verse that eternal life is what? It's a free gift. So what do we do with Romans 8.13? Romans 8.13 tells us if we mortify our flesh, we will live. Romans 6.23 tells us that eternal life is a free gift of God. What do we do with that? Well, um, let's keep going because as we keep going, I think that question will start to get answered for us. But do you see the tension there? I want us to see the tension there. If someone were to bring it up to you sometime, I don't want you to be struck as if something strange is going on. Uh, on the on the at the first glance, there is some tension there, but it's easily resolved, and we'll see that in a few minutes. The second thing that um, I want to point out is the persons. Remember the you. If you look back to verse thirteen, Paul says, "If you." Now, who are the you of this passage? Uh, for starters, the you here is plural, and the English in modern English we've lost the ability to distinguish between second person singular and second person plural, unless you're from Pittsburgh. If you're from Pittsburgh, you got it down. Because in Pittsburgh, if it's you, it's you. If it's more than you, it's yuns. Right? It's yuns. Yuns. Um, that's, uh, that's an idiom that's common to Pittsburgh. And uh, the King James translation points this out in the Old English ye. Uh, ye is the second person plural of you. And it reads, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the flesh, ye shall live. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But through, if through the Spirit uh, do mortify the flesh, ye shall live. I think that's so cool. It's cool like that. Uh, in seminary, we didn't use ye. In seminary, we used yuns. We were told to use yons. Uh, if we were translating a Hebrew sentence... And in the tran- course of the translation, if there was a second person plural, we would better put yuns in there because if we just put you in there, it was wrong. We may have we may have understood that it was plural, but we needed to be we needed to be sure. You had to put yuns in there. And what was so cool about it is if you knew my if you knew my um, my Greek teacher, especially he's a he has Ph two PhDs, I think, in linguistics. He didn't like saying yuns much, man. It's not proper English. He just didn't like it. But he was the one saying, listen, I want you to put yuns down. Put yuns down. And I'll know that you understood that it's second person plural. Okay. Now, we've got you, ye, yuns. What do we do with all this? Who are these people? Who are the you, the ye, the yuns? Uh, Three things are important here. Context, context, and what? Context. If you back up to verse 12, Paul says, So, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Who are the brothers? Well, of course, they're believers. Uh, they're believers in the church of Rome. Now, you know, Paul is writing to the church that's in Rome. We, we might have in our minds, like, there's this big church of, like, thousands and thousands of people in, in, in Rome. Um, but in actuality, at this point in time, there's probably a whole bunch of churches that look very much like ours. Little small gatherings scattered all over the place. And it's to these little small gatherings that are scattered all over the place that the apostle writes. And if you look back to chapter eight, back to verse 1 of chapter 8, uh, Paul there, you know, he, he's speaking of those from whom there's no condemnation. If you look at verse 9, he's speaking of those whom are in the Spirit. Verse 11, those in whom the Spirit dwells. Uh, These are the you. If you look through those verses, you'll see very clearly that anteceding the yuns are uh, true believers in possession of the Holy Spirit who have been taken out of Adam and and engrafted into Christ through the gift of faith. Okay? Owen writes, uh, quote, The pressing of this duty, that is the pressing of killing sin or mortifying sin, He says the pressing of this duty immediately on any other that would be anyone other than a Christian is a notable fruit of that superstition and self-righteousness that the world is full of the great work and design of devout men, ignorant of the gospel. End of quote. What is he saying here? Why is this important? It's important because we should never press the work of mortification upon those whom we know not to be believers. And when we hear that, we might think, this sounds wrong. I say, wait a second, Rick, that sounds wrong. So you're telling me, okay, if I know, I'm know i at the water cooler at work, and I know somebody is not a believer, and I know they're living in some particular sin, I'm not, to, I'm, not to, I'm not to send them off trying to kill that sin. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Um, that is what I'm saying. Again, this is going to become clear in a few minutes. Let's move on to the means or the cause. How do we do do this? How How do we kill sin that's in our lives? Look again to verse 13 with me. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that little phrase, by the Spirit. See that little phrase, by the Spirit, is by the Spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the body. In other words, it's through the agency and power of the Holy Spirit that we... Uh, that we mortify flesh. Now, listen to what Owen says on this. He says, quote, Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion. I'm going to read that again. I want you to get this. Mortification from a self-strength Carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. All false religion. I have this fully written out. If anybody wants these quotes, you send me a note. I'll email this entire thing to you if you want to look at these quotes. Because it's hard to sit there and listen to them. And and you have to meditate on them a while. But what um, Owen is saying, I, I mean... You know, he's saying what I just said a few minutes ago. We're not to press our unbelieving loved ones to kill their sin. And that sounds kind of wrong to us. And it sounds wrong to us because we know that each of us are going to be required to give an account for our sins, don't we? We're each going to be given an account. And we think, now, why would we Why would we not want to send people off trying to mortify their sin? Owen is really helpful. He, he writes... Quote, it is true, it is, it will be required of every person, whatever that hears the law or the gospel preached, that he mortify sin. Owen is not saying, okay, that we don't do this. He's saying it's, it's important that we do do this. He says it is his duty, but it is not his immediate duty. It is his duty to do it, but to do it in God's way. Sin is to be mortified, but something is to be done first in order to enable it. End of quote. So, if it is by the Spirit that we're to mortify sin, how does one who does not have the Spirit going to mortify sin? This is not a do it yourself project. It's not a self health project here. Now, let me stop and make application of this. Um, I thought about all week long how I could make application of this. And I'll tell you, there's one. There's one that just kept coming up to me. I mean, sometimes we'll come alongside somebody. Sins, there are, there are certain sins in our society that are unacceptable. And there's a whole bunch of other sin in our society that's socially unacceptable. You know, there's and even in the even in the culture of the church, overeating, acceptable. Overeat all you want. No big deal. Let's have a covered dish dinner. And let's just let's just woof it down, you know. That's an acceptable sin. It's the sin of gluttony, everyone. I mean, that's that's acceptable in the church. It shouldn't be, but it is. Uh, loving our stuff more than God in many places, that's cool, that's okay. You love your stuff more than God. Love your checking account more than God. Love all this stuff more than God. Slander, that's okay. Keep it to a minimum, but it's okay. Gossiping, that's okay, but um, do it in the corner. Don't do it. Uh, just try to keep it under wraps uh, Uh, this stuff's okay, but addiction? Oh, no, no, addiction's not okay. So, for example, we come alongside someone who's got a problem with gambling, or pornography, or uh, alcohol, or heroin, or whatever it might be. Well, we're tempted to simply focus on that single problem that's in their life and make that the whole focus of our ministry to that person. So to say that if you could just get rid of the gambling, you just stop the gambling and you'd be OK if you could just stop the gambling. I mean, we're uh, the alcohol. We're tempted to focus on alcohol abuse. We'll say, listen, just stay away from the bottle. Uh, stay away from certain people. Read your Bible. Come to church. Uh, pray for deliverance. Um, do that and, and everything is going to be in this. Everything is going to be all right. Well, all of this is good advice, isn't it? It's not that any of this is wrong. It just has the cart out in front of the horse. You know, when the cart's out in front of the horse, we're in the process of a crash. We've got things out of out of um, out of sync here. Uh, None of these things should be the first order of business. What should be the first order of business when we come across somebody uh, who is wrestling with a particular sin? Let me give you another example here. This is a real-life example. The young woman that called me is going to remain anonymous. I'm going to do what I can to protect her identity because I don't want anyone to know who she is, but I got a phone call from a young woman years ago. She was crying. I had been sharing the gospel with her and her boyfriend. She had come under some conviction. She called, wanted to see me. I went to see her. She's crying at the bottom of her lungs and said, I'm going to go to hell. And I said, well, why are you going to go to hell? Because I'm living with my boyfriend. Okay, what would you say in response to that? This is what I said, for better or for worse. I said, well, if you go to hell, it's not going to be so much because you're living with your boyfriend. It's going to be because of unbelief. And the fact that you're living with your boyfriend is merely one single expression Of that unbelief. My whole point was to try to take her mind off of this one particular sin, not to diminish it in any way. It's a serious sin. It's a really serious sin in God's sight to be shacked up together. That is a really serious sin. I didn't want to diminish that. But what I wanted her to see and what I wanted her boyfriend to see is you got bigger troubles than that. You are rebelling against God. You are saying, Lord, I don't care how you want me to run my life. I'm going to run my life my way. I'm going to do it my way. And being shacked up is just one single expression. There are many other expressions. There are many other ways in your life in which you are expressing this rebellion. The biggest problem that this young woman had was the wrath of God was upon her for unbelief. That was her biggest problem. And I wanted her to focus on that. I wanted her to focus on that because otherwise, here's something that could happen. She could say, you know what? I'm moving out. I'm going back in with my parents and I'm not going to live with them. Without a further explanation, that sin of living with her boyfriend could just resolve itself into pride and self-righteousness. And that's often what happens. And everybody's happy. Oh, look, you know, she come under conviction. She moved out. She's living with her. Own. Oh, okay. Well, what about Jesus? What's she say about Jesus? Well, she had not said anything about Jesus. Um, she said she didn't want to go to hell and she's going to go to hell. She continues to live with her boyfriend. But she hasn't said, You see how this all goes wrong? Let me give you another. Let me flesh this out even further. A person is bit by a rattler. Okay, a rattlesnake strikes a person on the back of the calf. What do we say to this person? Do we say to this person, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go home, elevate your leg, get some rest, put a cold pack on it to try to keep the swelling down. And when you get the feeling up to it, come to the ER and get some antivenom." Does that sound like good advice? No, what do we do? We want to get them to the anti-venom as fast as we possibly can to reduce the damage to the... To the I don't know a lot about this, but I understand that, that that poison is very damaging to the tissue. Causes it to swell up. We want to get the anti-venom in them as fast as we possibly can. Listen, folks, Christ is the anti-venom of sin. The first work is to get them to Jesus, to get them to Christ. That is, It's not killing this particular sin over here. It's getting them to Jesus so they can have deliverance from all sin so that they can now have the Holy Spirit. And once they have the Holy Spirit, now, now they're able to go to the work of mortifying sin. Does that make sense? We do things so wrong and so backwards and it's so well intended. Owen says this, listen to this quote. He says, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. There is no death of sin Without the death of Christ. Paul illustrates this. Turn to chapter 9. Let's go ahead a little bit to chapter 9, verse 30 to 32. Romans 9, verses 30 to 32. Paul says there, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 31. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, if we press mortification upon our our unbelieving loved ones, we're setting them off on a course of works. We're not setting them on the course of faith. And they'll be unsuccessful. You can't mortify a single sin. Um, apart from Jesus, what do we do? We press them to not mortification. Listen, we don't press them on mortification. We press them on conversion. Conversion. That's the first work. And we use the obvious sin to show that they're full of nothing but sin. I mean, you could use the idolatry of alcoholism. We could use whatever that particular sin is, by all means, make use of it but show that we need a full, true, real, live conversion here. If we're going to be delivered from anything, even the smallest and least significant of sins, we're going to have to have Christ Jesus to do it. Now, let me return to a question that's still hanging out there. Romans 8.13 tells us if we mortify the flesh, we'll live. Romans 6.23 tells us that eternal life is a free gift of God. How do we put these two things together? Well, we see that no one can receive eternal life simply by mortifying their flesh, because you can't mortify your flesh without the Holy Spirit, right? So the only people who are mortifying their flesh are people who are already in the Holy Spirit, correct? These are people who already are alive. Does that make sense? So... um, uh, the Apostle Paul can say, if we mortify our flesh, we'll live. Uh, he can say this because the only people who will mortify their flesh are people who are already alive. But he's saying more than that. And we're going to see that he's saying more than that. And we'll see that here in a few minutes. Um, okay, we've talked about the condition. If if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We've talked about the persons, the you, ye, youngs are true believers in the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about the cause. The cause is the Holy Spirit. We can't do this. This is not a do-it-yourself project. Let's talk about the duty itself. Uh, In other words, what's Paul calling us to do? Uh, Our text tells us he's calling us to put to death the deeds of the body, or the King James translation, which I actually like better, mortify. Mortify the deeds of the body. Uh, Mortify the deeds of the body. Now, uh, three things need to be explained here. Owen does this in his work very marvelously he says that uh, we need to know what the body is in this text we need to know what deeds of the body are and we need to know what it means to put to death the deeds of the body what are what is meant by the body what is meant uh, by the um, deeds of the body and what is meant by putting to death the deeds of the body well the body here is simple enough if you look at verse 13 with me again you'll notice that the word flesh and body are kind of put in parallel with each other you see that Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And then there's the parallel. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you see the deeds of the body or the body and the flesh are in parallel with each other. Uh, All this means is the flesh, as I've said in earlier messages, is anything that is in opposition to God. Anything and everything that is in rebellion against God. That is what is meant by the flesh what is meant by the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body that is simply our sin put in action that is simply our sin put in action once that sin is put in action Uh, back to our poor young woman that called me she's living with her boyfriend okay uh, she's rebelling against god Uh, they both are Uh, in rebellion against god okay living together is simply a deed of the body it's putting that rebellion in action as we set that rebellion in motion we do it uh through deeds of the body if you will um uh, galatians 5 19 describes these it said, paul says in galatians five nineteen that the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not an exhaustive list, but it is indeed quite a list, isn't it? Um, these are the deeds of the body. Now putting to death or to mortify the deeds of these bod- uh, of the deeds of the body is simply to take the life out of them. Let's think about it. when we've been tempted to sin, that temptation is, that temptation is real, isn't it? And it's powerful. And once it once it blooms and it blossoms, it takes you in its course, doesn't it? It's like those wind speeds that we saw with Irma. You know, Donald was talking about a, a, a somebody who, was a, one of these storm chasers. They get out of the car with some kind of device they want to measure things with, and the man standing in 130 mile an hour winds, and he immediately was blown back uh, ten feet, fifteen feet, I think. You had said this. we were uh, before we were praying. Donald was describing this. That's the power of this. That's the strength of it, isn't it? I mean, think about times you've been tempted. You've been tempted, and and it starts with a little thought in your mind, and then um, you, you 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 entertain it, and as you entertain it, you give strength to it, you give power to it, you give vigor to it, and then, bam! What happens with all of this strength? You fall. Mortifying sin, mortifying these deeds of the body is taking the life out of that. It's taking the strength out of that. It's killing that so that it's lifeless. It's not something that we will do perfectly in this life. We won't ever mortify every sin. Uh, we have particular vices. Um, it's not until we reach heaven that. That will be set completely free from that. That's called glorification. And that doesn't happen in this life. But what are we called to do in this life? I could I could I could summarize it with one simple word. We're called to fight. Mortifying sin is fighting. It's fighting. We're called to fight. Let's build on something that we've studied in chapter 6. I spent so much time on it because it's so important. We learned that when we became believers, we became so united with Jesus that Paul tells us that we were united with Him in His crucifixion and death, weren't we? If you look back to Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And Paul's responding to an objection, isn't he? He's writing this in in response to an objection. Someone says, you know, this grace that you're preaching about, Paul, if this is all true, why don't we sin that grace may abound? And Paul's saying, what? No way. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who've been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then he goes down to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is why we don't press unbelievers with this stuff. They're still in their sins. They're still united to Adam. They're they're completely enslaved to it. They have no way in and of themselves to do anything but what they're doing. Uh, This has only worked for believers. But verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. And again, remember what Owen has taught us. Without the death of Christ, there is no death of sin. So as soon as you and I put our faith and our trust in Christ Jesus, that old person dies. And God doesn't view us any longer as that old person. We're now a new creation in Christ Jesus. How does God deal with us? He deals with you this way. You are a beloved son or daughter a beloved son or daughter. That is the way he will always deal with you if you are trusting in him savingly. Think about how much you love your kids. He loves you more than that. And he always will. And he will never stop. And we need to understand that. His love does not ebb and flow and go back and forth depending on what kind of day we've had. Thank goodness for that. It's always the same. He loves you just as much on those bad days as he loved you on the good days. And we have to remember that. Always remember that. Don't ever forget that. Always remember that. Because we're going to have a lot of bad days. Because in spite of the fact that we have been delivered from this sin, there's a remnant of it that still remains in our hearts and it's painful, isn't it? It's painful. And we are to fight against it. The work of mortification is the work of putting to death all strength, all power, all vigor of this remaining sin. So we've talked about the condition. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. We've talked about the persons. Who is to do this? The yuns, the ye. True believers are to do this. What is the means of this? The Holy Spirit is the means of this. What is the duty? Taking the life out of it. Taking the strength out of it, fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit in God's What is the promise? What is the promise? Well, in our text, we actually have two promises. Uh, many commentators only speak as though there's one. It seems to me there are two. If you look here, there's one promise. If you live according to the flesh, you'll what? You'll die. You can take that to the bank, by the way. That's a promise. If you live according to the flesh, you're going you're to die. That's not the burden of the passage, I don't think. I think the burden of the passage is, is promise number two. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the promise of life. It's the promise of life. Listen to what John Owen writes. He offers this suggestion. I think it's really helpful. He offers it as a suggestion. He writes, quote, Now, perhaps the word may not only intend eternal life, but also the spiritual life in Christ, which here we have, not as to the essence and being of it, which is already enjoyed by believers, but as to, and listen to this, as to the joy, comfort, and vigor of it. As to the joy, the comfort, and the vigor of it. As the apostle says in another case, 1 Thessalonians 3.8, Quote, now my life will do me good. I shall have joy and comfort with my life. End of quote. Owen says, "Ye shall live, lead a good, vigorous, comfortable, spiritual life whilst you are here and obtain eternal life hereafter. Um, what do we make of all of that? Well, let me flesh that out for you. All this is to say, what is Owen saying? He's saying our joy in God. He's saying our comfort in God, our assurance of salvation in Christ, our devotion to God through Christ, our power and strength for the Christian life, all depend on the mortification of sin. Again, this has to be carefully. Next week, I think I'm going to revisit this because there's so many ways we can go wrong here. Don't think for a second that your joy in the Christian life is dependent on your mortification of sin in the strictest sense. If we say that in the strictest sense, then what it sounds like is we're back on a self-help program again. This isn't a self-help program. Your joy in Christ, if you have any joy in Christ, is because of the grace of God blessing you by way of the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from. In the strictest sense, God is the source of all of these graces. He's the source of all these blessings. He's the source of all this joy. That having been said, let's put that over here. And let's suppose we begin to be careless and entertain sin in our life. What are we going to do to this joy that we have over here? We're going to begin to smother it, aren't we? That's exactly what will happen. We'll begin to smother it. What will happen to our comfort in God? Well, it's going to be compromised. And if we go on this course for very long, What is eventually going to happen? We're going to begin to lose assurance that we're even in Christ at all. Does that make sense? I want to conclude two ways here that I think wraps all this up of what Paul is saying to us. And the first is a warning. You know, if we're in Christ Jesus, we see very clearly, if you're in Christ this morning, you are the youngs, you are the ye, you are the you in verse 13 second half of verse 13 so we are called to fight and we're to fight with the spiritual strength supplied by the holy spirit which is faith what happens if we don't what happens if we don't there's a there's a best case and a worst case what is the best case you're steadily going to lose your joy in god you can take that to the bank that's what's going to happen you're going to lose your comfort in God. You're going to lose your sal- assurance of salvation. Your, your devotion to God is going to it's just it's just going to diminish. Uh, your, your spiritual power and strength in God is going to diminish. This is the best case, everyone. Is, this is the best case. The worst case is your profession of Christ will have been proven to be false all along. This is why people fall. Away. In April, it'll be 10 years since Tammy and I opened our home for a Bible study. It was an exploratory Bible study to see if God would be pleased to put a church, Tri-State Community Church, in the Ohio Valley. And a couple of us, there are three of us now present I think there are three of us from the initial gathering of about 25 people that quickly... We we thought, thought this was going to go pretty well because we went from zero to 25 pretty quickly, didn't we? Where's everybody at? And over the last 10 years, it's going to be 10 years in April, I've watched so many people come in here and get excited. Where are they at? Listen to Owen here. He says, "Quote: The root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart." As we begin to entertain this, at first it's going to be very bitter to us. We know it's wrong. It's going to be very bitter. You continue on it. It's going to. It's going to become a little easier to digest. To the point it can be digested without bitterness. When a man has confirmed his imagination to such an apprehension of grace and mercy as to be able without bitterness to swallow and digest daily sins, that man is at the very brink of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and being hearted by the deceitfulness of sin. He's on the brink of disaster. Owen oh, continues, neither is there greater evidence of a false and rotten heart in the world than to drive such a trade. To use the blood of Christ, which is given to cleanse us. The exaltation of Christ, which is given a, to give us repentance. And the doctrine of grace, which teaches us to deny all ungodliness, to count in sin, is a rebellion that in the issue will break the bones. He's quoting from David, who talks about when, he's, when he was sinning against God, it was like his bones were broken. I realize this is a long quote, but listen to what Owen says next. He says, quote, at this door have gone out from us most of the professors that have apostatized in these days. You see, it is at that door, that's the door where we fall away from quite frankly we cannot tell the difference between backsliding and apostasy we do not have access to the heart we do not know the difference between backsliding and backsliding and apostasy only god knows the difference between that owen goes on to say he says at this door have gone out from us most of the professors that have apostatized in the days wherein we live for a while there were most of them under convictions we've seen this These kept them unto duties and brought them to profession so they escaped the pollutions that are in the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. He's quoting from 2 Peter 2.20 there. It goes on. But having got an acquaintance with the doctrine of the gospel and being weary of duty for which they had no principle, they began to countenance themselves in manifold neglects from the doctrine of grace. Now, when once this evil had laid hold of them, they speedily tumbled into perdition. What happened? Where'd everybody go? Where are they at? i followed through and tried to catch up with many of them. In short, Owen says this, quote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is why people fall away. If you're in Christ Jesus, I believe wholeheartedly in the doctrine of eternal security. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're eternally secure. But how do we know if we're in Christ Jesus or not? Anyway, we might get a list of names of people who, man, it's hurt. People who I've known, they were in the church for a while. They seemed like they were going great. Everything was going great. If we had that list of names and we had all these people written down, the list of names, and someone come to me and say, Are these people believers? I don't know. I really don't know. How are you gonna tell? If you ask them, they'll tell you they're believers. They don't really care if they worship Jesus or not. Do you realize how serious of a thing that is? They don't really care if they worship Jesus or not. What do you think you're going to do in heaven? If you don't have any interest in worshiping Jesus, heaven wouldn't be heaven for you. as it's going to be an eternity of worshiping Jesus. Do you like to worship Jesus? If you don't, I mean, I don't think heaven's going to be all that swell. It's just hell sounds real bad. I don't know. I don't want to go there. I don't know where people are, but I'm very fearful of where they might be. The second thing I want to say is a blessing. I have a warning and a blessing. Enough about the warning. What about the blessing? Listen to this. And I want to talk more about this next week, Lord willing. I reserve the right to change my mind, because I, but, I, but right now that's what I want to do. If next week I don't do it, I've got to out, okay? Because I don't know how God's going to lead me, guide me as I pray. But I'd like to talk more about this Blessing. Because as you receive the call to fight, you're not always going to win. But one thing I promise you will happen. God will bless you in ways that you can't imagine. He will come alongside you in an intimacy. He will come alongside of you with strength. He will come alongside of you and He will enlarge your heart. The psalmist says, Lord, enlarge in my heart so that I will praise you. He will enlarge in your heart and it will increase your devotion. It will increase your adoration. It will increase your awe of Him. One of the things in my little prayer journal here has recently is, Lord, increase our awe. We are so lacking in awe of you. One of the reasons we're so lacking in awe of God is because we don't fight. If we want that blessing, we've got to fight. I I wrote this sentence down earlier this week because I think it encapsulates it. It says this, all of the blessings of the gospel promises bud and flower into beauty as we fight. All of the blessings of the gospel promises. Bud and flower into beauty as we fight. Paul puts it this way. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, oh, you're going to live. You will see life like you've never seen it before. Does that make sense? That's enough for today, huh? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and praise you for great teachers that you've given your church. John Owen, being one of the greatest of all teachers who, have, who has guided us this morning, Father. Um, but Father, we so thank you that way above and beyond uh, John Owen, if he were here today, he would say, Oh, but no, you've not been guided by me, you've been guided by the Holy Spirit. We've been guided by you, Father, and we understand that. We just always want to give credit where it is due. Father, we so thank you that, Father, you have seen fit to raise up pastors and teachers who have written books that that you have preserved for us so that we could read and we could come to know our faith in a way in which others who have made so much more progress in sanctification that we we could see Uh, we could see these great things, Father. Father, I pray that as we look at Romans 8.12 and 8.13, that we will be motivated to fight and we will be motivated... So that we would see your glory, so that we would see the blossoms and the budding and that our adoration of you would be increased, our awe of you would be increased, our fear of you would be the healthy fear, the fatherly fear, fear of your fatherly displeasure, fear of, of, of displeasing you, that that would all be increased, Father, that, Lord, we too could be propelled. Uh, by these very verses that father the life the spiritual life that we enjoy in christ jesus would be so far greater than what we currently enjoy now and father we pray that this would be contagious that it would be contagious and would fill and flourish to everyone whom we come in contact with for your glory and we pray these things in jesus name amen and amen